Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a brand new middle grade novel. And I'm Evie O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider why do some authors take the hard way out and what's the payoff when they do? Lori Frankel is an author who gives herself huge challenges when she writes her books. She's the New York Times bestselling, award-winning author of four novels. Her new novel, 123, is due out in June of this year. Her writing has also appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Publishers Weekly, People Magazine, Lit Hub, and many other publications. Her novels have been translated into more than 25 languages and have been optioned for film and TV. She was recently named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle, where she lives with her family and makes good soup. Ooh, we didn't ask her about the soup. I'm very disappointed that we didn't ask her about the soup. I bet we can still ask her about it. I think she'll take our call. We had such a lovely conversation with her. Oh, I know. It was it was so delightful. I know, I know. It was fascinating to hear about how she's incorporated complicated family issues into her writing, how she's handled hateful reactions as well as a sea of positive ones. How in her latest book, she set up challenge after challenge after challenge for herself and managed to meet them all, which I'm so jealous of. I could have talked to her all day and I do not understand why she didn't just stay. I know. I know. She should be here right now, but we can reach out again. We'll tell her it's about the soup and then we'll just keep her talking. I like it. In the conversation that we've already had, we started by asking Lori about the modern love essay that she wrote about an experience in her family that helped inspire her third novel. Here's what she said. My third book, This Is How It Always Is, is about a family of five boys, the youngest of whom turns out, in fact, to be a girl. It's about a transgender child. And I have a transgender child. The child in the book and the child in my house have nearly nothing in common, <laughs> not least because <laughs> yeah. uh, my kid is an only child and this is a family of five. And I have to think that that is just an essentially and completely different thing. It is also true that the kid in the book is much older than my kid was at the time. But mostly what it is, is that we are very, very lucky and very blessed to be leading a really boring life. It was not clear to me when I started the book necessarily that it was going to be about a transgender kid or that I was going to have a transgender kid. Both of those things seemed like they might have gone in, in any number of directions. When they came together, then some really pretty significant decisions had to be made about how to put the book out into the world with my name on it and make sure that my family and our privacy were still protected. And that's where the Modern Love column came from. It was the kind of 1,500 words that was interesting and was true to life to go along with the 125,000 that I made up. Right. Yeah. And do you just want to, in one or two sentences, say what that was? Since I don't know whether our listeners will have seen that essay. Oh, yeah, for sure. One of the questions that people ask all the time is, how did we know? 
or to talk about her coming out. She was very young at the time. She was six. A thing that people want to know all the time is like, how did we react or what were our first thoughts or how did we negotiate those like early days? And in fact, it was nothing like any of those things. It is nothing like people imagine. It was a very slow transition, not any of which was particularly alarming. There was nothing that we would have wanted to say no to at any point. There was nothing that was really scary at all. So the modern love piece is about when she decided to start wearing dresses. Up until that point, she had been thinking of herself as a boy. We had been thinking of her as a boy. And her being a boy who wore dresses was entirely fine with her parents and entirely fine with her. The essay is also about her going to first grade. And so in some ways, I guess it's the transition from wearing dresses at home and wearing dresses to the grocery store to suddenly wearing dresses to school and whether that was going to be a problem for her or for school or for the other kids. And the answer was no, it wasn't a problem for anyone. And what a wonderful lesson that is on any number of fronts. I'm guessing that one, two, three is even farther removed from your reality. What inspired that novel? That too is another really wonderful question that I always have difficulty answering. Same reason, because the answer is, I, I don't know. I, I'm walking the dog, I'm taking a shower and like yeah. it comes from the sky into my brain and I'm full of joy. And, and, and then <laughs> I write 400,000 words and then I cut 300,000 of them and then a miracle occurs. <laughs> That's, that yeah. seems to me to be like the most honest encapsulation of the process. In this case, it is about sisters. And the last book was about brothers. It was about boys and the way they navigate the world. It was very much about gender. This book is really about sisters. It is about the way girls superhero. I think that the way girls superhero is very different than the way boys superhero. And we get that male hero narrative over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. I think that the way that girls' superhero is different from that, I think it is often more interesting. I think it is often more effective, and it is much less often told. Uh, I think our daughters are going to save us. I think that the generation of girls coming up is going to save us all, and we need it. So that is one of the things that inspired this book. Yeah. Can I just say, I love your answer about the superhero, and I want to add one other thing, which is that not only do people not notice the way girls do it, but they often belittle it. Yeah. There's this great moment in your book where I think it's Mirabelle talks about um, teenage girls not getting it. And here I wrote it down. Don't get enough credit for this. Their ability to see the potential import of everything, no matter how insignificant it seems and analyze it endlessly. She's describing female characters doing that thing that girls do, which is to analyze every last detail (laughs) of every last thing. But you're saying it's a strength, it's a power, it's a superpower, which love three cheers for that. (laughs) For me, that's what the whole book is about. Lots of the people in this book suffer from this thing that has been done to them. My elevator pitch for this thing is it's about a very small town with a very dark past, which turns out not to be so past after all. And that very dark past has resulted in a great many challenges for the people who live in this town. And indeed, many of them suffer from disabilities. 
those two, I think, are often sold short, are often suggested to us as being negatives when in fact, these girls want to say, no, these are strengths. This is what makes us so amazing. Look what we can do. It's going to take 400 pages. It's going to look like you're used to seeing where it's this, you know, very strong, very lone man who takes care of things all by himself. And that's what makes him remarkable. Girls carry as they climb. Girls find strength from one another. They aren't going to look necessarily like what we think superheroes are going to look like, but that's why it works. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is so interesting about the superhero genre is that there's so much destruction in their wake. You know, it's like, Great news. I've saved New York City. Like, never mind about these 400 innocent bystanders who got crushed (laughs) by cars along the way. Look how strong and impressive I look in Mm. my spandex. And that's, I mean, I don't even know if it's an appealing fantasy, but it's certainly a fantasy. Um, And so I wanted to tell a, a different story. I love that. The other thing that I, I guess I will say in a more literal what inspired this sort of a way is Nathaniel Rich wrote an article in the New York Times in January of 2016 that I read about a small town that was downstream from a chemical plant that was polluting their water. And the lawyer who took on that case and proceeded to take on that case for two decades and counting. That article sparked something in my brain. I could not stop thinking about that. And once I could not stop thinking about it, I started seeing it everywhere because though in fact the article was remarkable and the lawsuit was also remarkable, that story of this corporate entity is polluting And we know that this is happening and we know the terrible things it is doing to the people who live downstream, uh, literally and metaphorically, but we're not stopping it anyway is something that I see every time I open a newspaper now. Mm -hmm. And that is at once very inspiring in a kind of literal way. These people who are doing these epic, epic battles And it is also something that I felt these are really important stories to tell. I love the way that Lori sees and conveys the people who are fighting these epic battles. It manages to be both firmly realistic and to give a sense of the mythic. I am so embarrassed to say that I had never thought before about this deeply ingrained view that we have of the superhero coming in, saving the city, all bulked up in spandex, while without fail, wide swaths of innocent bystanders are killed all around him. Like, why is that part of the fantasy? And why have I never questioned it? Yeah. Um, So I don't know how to say this without making you feel bad. Um, But I think about that all the time. (laughs) I'm sure you're not alone. (laughs) And it drives me nuts. You know, it's why I lose interest in action films after the first half hour when they finished all the backstory and the character development. It's all part of that exceptionalism myth. The lone man who's better, smarter, stronger than everybody else, which is why he and he alone can save the world. But it's also why the lives of the unexceptional don't matter. And as you can imagine, this also ties into why I hate oh, the places you'll go. <laughs> yeah. Because if some people are the best of the best, then everybody else is lesser. And there are huge political consequences to that kind of thinking. Yeah, it's so much better to shift the way that we think. 
It's a really fascinating shift in thinking, I think, for me, because I grew up and really I was sort of raised on this notion of like, how are you special? How are you special? I know I'm not alone in that. And I never really thought about what that means about every, everyone else as I pursued trying to be special, trying to be special. I never really thought about the, the negative consequences, but they're real. Well, negative consequences in terms of other people, but also I think all that, how are you special? How are you special? makes a person really anxious, right? That's where the <laughs> secretly believing I'm not so special becomes a problem. Right, or like, right. God forbid you don't cure cancer and you just have a, a normal life as a contributing member of society with friends and family members you love. Like, and that's some sort of failure, right? Because you're not saving the world. I don't so know what it, you're talking about anxious. <laughs> what, is, what is this anxiety you speak I know. of? Well, I'm talking about other people, obviously. <laughs> oh, Julie, not, I'm not you, not me, but you know, right. it's, it's just damaging on both ends, this idea of exceptionalism. Yeah. Lori's book is helpful in that regard, as in many others. Um, the next thing we talked to her about is why she set up so many obstacles for herself when she was writing one, two, three. I feel like you set yourself up with so many obstacles <laughs> for this book. <laughs> so many. <laughs> you take on the very challenging topic. It's told from the perspective of three different characters, which is hard. And not only that, but one of the characters has, as it's described in the book, a body that doesn't work like people's bodies on TV. And one has a brain that doesn't work like people's brains on TV. So, you know, <laughs> like A, are you a masochist? And B, like how on earth did you manage to pull this off? Because you did, you know, these characters are brought very persuasively to life and the story is compelling. But how did you, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love that question. And it's really, really funny. And masochist might be the answer. Some of it is that I couldn't see it going in. I didn't realize that it was going to have to be that way. I think if I had, I would never have undertaken it because indeed it sounds, it sounds mad. It's too steep a hill. I, you know, I think um, looking at it from the bottom, I, I would not have elected to go on that hike. I can't see it from the bottom. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I, I don't know. Um. In an interview after you wrote your second book, you said you didn't read your reviews. Even in a sea of positive reviews, one negative review would stick with you, which is so relatable. Totally. <laughs> um, so, so you chose to be blissfully unaware of reactions. And then in an interview after your third book, This Is How It Always Is, about a transgender child, you said that every morning you were receiving hate mail, that it, it was just unavoidable. So what was that transition like for you? And how did you come to terms with it? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you ask it that way, because I would say I have stuck to that and never looked back. I do not read reviews. I don't want to know. And in fact, early on, I thought this is a character flaw. Like I need to toughen my skin. I need to become a person who can read reviews. Like this is something I should be doing as a responsible, I don't know, novelist in the world. And I don't know whether that that's true, but I definitely talked myself out of it. And um, I just came to feel great comfort in, you know, I don't, I don't want to know. Um, it's interesting because the, the hate mail was mostly in response to the modern love piece. Some other things that I wrote and some other pieces that came out about the book, but all of that happened before the book actually came out. And so 
there was a lot of there was a lot of nastiness in my inbox. There was a lot of nastiness in my social media. I learned how to block whole swaths of people on Twitter, um, which proved useful. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. all of it was in response to me as a person. Well, I should say me as a person, me as a mother. The fact that I had written this book was really, really irritating and and offensive to people. But none of it was about the book itself. And here, I think, is where you get really into the author psyche, which is that didn't bother me nearly as much as a review that's like, I loved this book. This book was so fantastic. I did kind of wonder why she did this thing and, you know, in this part. But otherwise, I totally loved it. And me walking around for months on end thinking about that one thing that somebody wondered about. <laughs> why didn't I do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so... Um, you know, I think one lives and dies with the book. The book seems like an actual manifestation of my soul. Whereas people writing me really, really nasty messages about my right to speak or my right to parent or, you know, the, lots of people who wrote and said like, you are what's wrong with the world today actually turns out to be much easier to ignore than I loved this book, but I don't know why she did this with this character. Mm, that's <laughs> um, so interesting. I mean, it is. It's so interesting. I don't know if it's healthy. <laughs> um, I don't know what it says about me, but it is definitely true. And I mean, and I guess the other the other thing to say, you know, about the answer to that question is that once the book came out, my emails became overwhelmingly loving and positive. I think that none of the people who reacted to that modern love piece were really, I think, the headline of the modern love piece. The headlines about the book read the book. They didn't read the book. <laughs> so no, no, nobody right. was uh, <laughs> writing to me telling me um, nasty things about the book. Everybody was just writing to me telling me nasty things about myself in advance of the book. As I say, it, it turns out to be to be quite a bit more important, I guess, for me, that people love the book than, than that they necessarily love the idea of me based on headline. Right, right. So this past summer, J.K. Rowling decided to unleash some truly unnecessary transphobia into the world. Um, yes. I don't mean to be flip about an important subject, but my reaction was like, go back into your Scottish castle and focus on writing about <laughs> yeah. fighting the forces of evil. Like, what is right. the matter with you? I'm wondering, yeah, if you have a reaction you'd like to share. Yeah. I mean, it was exactly that. It was very much a who asked you? Yeah. Um, and yeah. And I've, I mean, you know, speaking of things that make me infuriated, that make me furious, so much of the conversation around transgender people and transgender kids is so fundamentally dishonest and fear-mongering and baseless. It is enraging. My actual reaction to that, though, to the J.K. Rowling stuff was to keep my kid from finding out mm. <laughs> um, because of course yeah. like all like all children particularly when all of that stuff started happening which I feel like was the Christmas before last because my cousin was buying my kid like a fancy box set of of all of the Harry Potter books and we were just sort of waiting to see whether we could like keep her away from the news <laughs> so that she wouldn't find out so that she could yeah. keep those stories and that is a really interesting and big question that lots of people are asking on any number of friends, which is like, if I like this book, but I do not like this author, I do not like something this author has said, is it okay for me to keep liking this book? Is it okay for me to keep buying this book? 
those are difficult questions, but not necessarily questions that 10-year-olds should have to answer. Uh, as always, I never know if it's the right response as a parent. Um, Ugh, it's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. And uh, you know, the question about, you know, there's so many different examples of artists who are horrible human beings making great art and what to do about that. Yeah, but right. yes, when you add in the child piece, it's almost like, you know, as an author of children's books that are maybe uniquely loved, you, you should just keep your opinions to yourself because it's not okay. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's right. You know, I think that in general, the position of saying artists are not allowed to speak to this, this isn't any of her business, is a problematic position at best. But in this particular case, when you are beloved by lots of children and some children are having a really difficult time owing to forces that are using them to spread fear and to spread their own agenda dishonestly, that just seems like a really, really terrible thing to do. Can we go back to the topic of Lori's hate mail for a second? I love that she found it so easy to disregard the truly nasty things people said about her as a person and as a mother, but it would really have gotten to her like deep down if they had said something negative about her writing. I know. I so relate to that. I Maybe to non-writers, that seems strange or counterintuitive, but not to me. Oh, God. No, not to me either. I mean, the way I think about it is if someone has read my book, then they have a valid, informed opinion about it. So if they hate it, maybe I really do suck as a writer. Yeah. But whereas with the personal stuff, we've never met. They have no idea what I'm really like. So why do I care what they think about me? I want people to like my books and I don't really care that much whether they whether they think I'm doing a good job as a mother as long as my daughters, my husband and I think that I'm doing a fine job as a mother. Yeah. Anyway, it is interesting what the brain does with weighing the positive and the negative and sort of giving the negative ones so much power. The brain is so unreliable in that way and in other ways too. Um, we talked with Lori about kind of similar phenomenon, because one of the themes of one, two, three is the unreliability of memory. So we asked Lori why she chose to explore that topic. That came out of the book itself. When something really terrible has happened to you, has happened to your parents, your ancestors, has happened to your town, there are all sorts of negative repercussions of that. As we know, trauma takes lots of forms. And often is generational and intergenerational. Um, but one of the ways in which that manifested that I didn't think about until I started writing these characters is that it takes away memory, in part because so many of the people who were subjected to this trauma didn't make it. And of course, they took their memories with them. And then the people who are left get all of their happy memories, their good memories, and the memories that are serving them, those get papered over by the terrible things that came next. What it means to grow up in a town, in a people, in a world where memory has been compromised, when those tools for here's how we surmount difficulties, here's how we get over trauma, here's how we use this trauma to power us going forward, without those tools, that is another significant disadvantage. And it is an invisible one. And it is something that I think we don't talk about a lot and we don't even notice. Yeah. So 
another question about one, two, three. There's a tension throughout the story about Bourne, which is the town, uh, the fictional town where the story is set. It's hell and it's utopia. It's unlike any other place in the world. And it's the same as every other place in the world. Can you tell us about your thinking when it comes to these contradictions? Yep, that's exactly, that's perfect. I'm thrilled that you noticed. Oh, good. We got it right. <laughs> hey, hooray. Good job. You get an A. Um, that's exactly how I would put it. And that was exactly my intention. So one of the things I went into it with is teenagers always, always think that they have to get out of their town and their town is boring and their high school is full of losers. <laughs> and what is out there in the rest of the world is so much more exciting than what you have at home. This is the state of being 16, I think, not necessarily anything about this town in particular. And so I wanted to look at all of the ways in which this town is indeed very unusual and very anomalous and has had some truly terrible things happen to it with truly devastating effects and also the way it is exactly like everywhere else. And growing up there, one would feel as if one were very different and very isolated. And so the revelation that, yes, that's true, but actually it's true of every place else as well, seems like it would be kind of mind-blowing to a 16-year-old. So that was part of the idea I went into it with. And then the other piece of that is that if the majority of people in a town have a disability, if a majority of people in a town require some kind of accommodation and require accessibility, if you make the town accessible then is that town a beleaguered place or is that town a utopia? Is that town a really wonderful place to be? Yeah. Not as a, you know, we are going to set out to do this wonderful thing, but just as a, if you are meeting the needs of your citizens and the needs of your citizens are different than other citizens, then what does your town look like? And what does it mean to navigate that town at that point? was also something that I really wanted to do going in. And so I feel like this town is actually all three of those things. It is just like every other town. It is a town that has been beset by great trauma. And it is also a really, really wonderful place to live, particularly for the people who do, in fact, live there. And the fact that something could be all three of those things at once was astonishing to me. I love this recurring theme of seeing strengths as weaknesses, both in the characters individually and in the town as a whole. It reminds me a little bit of this time that we're going through now because it's been so devastating in so many ways, but I'm trying the best I can to kind of see some of its weaknesses as a kind of strength. For example, this keeps coming up for me lately as things start to reopen. We haven't been able to do anything practically, right? That has been bad. Mm -hmm. But it's also given this kind of pause to assess and think about like, how do we actually want to spend our time and how much of the frenetic quality of life that we had grown so used to, do we want to let back in to the extent that we can continue to choose? Like how much of our time do we try to keep protecting? Yeah. I'm afraid I've already answered that question for myself and not in an intentional way, mm -hmm. just a sort of default, can't stop it kind of way. I've let back in quite a lot of frenetic activity and I wish I hadn't. And I want to think about ways maybe that I can reverse that. Yeah. Um, the question in the book that I find most tantalizing is when Laurie said, 
if you're meeting the needs of your citizens and the needs of your citizens are different than other citizens, then what does your town look like? Yeah. I'm carrying that vision with me. The, the idea of a town that meets all the different needs of its citizens without judgment, without any kind of hierarchy, just if you need a wheelchair and I can only stand to wear yellow and eat foods that are yellow, then you get a wheelchair and I get to wear clothes that are yellow, eat foods that are yellow and nobody makes a big deal out of it. And we both go on with our lives. Yeah. That's a lovely vision of a town. Yeah. And that's it for this episode of the book dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Lori at www.loriefrankel.net and on Twitter at Lori underscore Frankel. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Book Dreams is part of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.